0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 5. We're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we find ourselves at verse 27 this morning, and um, just a... Just a little word, I, I just feel the, the gospel has already been so thick this morning in what we have sung, what we've read, what we've heard, what we've prayed. Uh, it is so good to be gathered with God's people in God's, there's just no place like it, right? I mean, there's no place, um, there's no place like being with God's people. And we're all, like we're all broken, jacked up people, right? I mean, if we went, we passed the mic It'd get pretty messy pretty quick, right? But isn't there just something beautiful about bringing our collective unworthiness together to see and savor the beauty and the sufficiency of the one who is worthy and makes worthy even the most unworthy for his glory and their joy? Uh, That's better than anything that happened yesterday on any football field across the South amen. Well, as you're finding Matthew chapter 5, um, you can find if you don't have a Bible as always, we encourage you to use one of the Bibles in front of you. Uh, and if maybe you're investigating Christianity, you're here by invitation of somebody and you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to keep that Bible and make it just our gift to you. If you're not used to looking up uh, scriptures in the Bible. You can find Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, which we'll be covering today, on page eight, ten, or 633, depending on which copy. Same version, just different printings of the same Bible. But keep that as our gift to you. Let me just mention, as you're finding that, what a great time, I heard, was had in this room. And Friday night, uh, we had a bunch of women gathered for Uh, Women's Weekend. Uh, They worked through the book of Ruth, and uh, just heard so many encouraging reports about that. Thank you to all the ladies that that labored behind the scenes to put that on. Um, And then, as we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, I just want to let you know that the next two weeks, we're likely going to take a break out of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Next week, we have the just privilege to see three of our brothers and sisters baptized and obey the Lord in baptism. And so, I thought it'd be good for us to uh, just take a moment and to Teach on baptism and its significance in the life of a Christian and in the life of a local church. So we'll be doing a standalone message on baptism next Sunday, and then the Sunday after that in the morning we're going to consider our role as a church in caring for uh, the orphan. And then in that evening, is, as as uh, uh, Will mentioned, we'll have uh, that dinner with Rick Morton, helping us as a church consider our responsibilities to care for the fatherless. And so that we're going to take a, a two week pause. All right, well, Matthew chapter 5, and as you find Travis, it's so good to have you, brother. Um, it just, where's Travis? He's somewhere around here. Oh, there you are. Okay, I was, I was seeing your family. If you don't know, Travis is Trisha James's brother, and um, so he's got kind of a family connection to the church. Thank you, brother, for uh, just your, your labor for the gospel in faraway places. We're very grateful for you and your wife and your family. Well, this is a weighty text. Uh, there is not a person in this room. Who has not been touched by lust, sexual temptation, um, and all of the despair that goes with that. Whether it's been something that we have given ourselves over to, or whether it's something that somebody that we love or close to has given themselves over to, and it has caused great despair and consequences in our life. This is a weighty text and a weighty issue, and it's one of the reasons why we just work through books of the Bible... So we don't skip passages like this. As we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, let's remember where we are. Jesus has begun with these beatitudes where he is encouraging Christians, saying this is what it looks like to be a Christian, to be poor in spirit, to be humble and meek, to be peacemakers, to be people that don't come to God with any worthiness, but we are, we're poor in spirit, knowing that it is only by his sovereign grace that we can be made right with God. And then this this type of humility and work of God that we are completely dependent on, then will the world will hate. It will cause us as true believers, true followers of Jesus, to be persecuted. And Jesus says, take heart in that, that you are to be the salt and the light. And then, for the rest of chapter 5, he is now speaking about the role, really, of the Old Testament law in the life of the New Testament believer, which is us. And he is trying... To debunk the bad interpretation of the Old Testament teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees,' debunking their incorrect interpretation of what it means to follow God and His law. And so he'll mention, as we looked at last week, he, he, the people will say, well, he will say, "You heard that it was said." And what he's saying by that is he's correcting the scribes and Pharisees' wrong interpretation of the Old Testament law. And this morning, we find ourselves in verse 27 through 30, where Jesus, again, is, is correcting this misinterpretation of God's holy law that was being taught by the leaders of God's people at the time. And the particular issue that he's settling down on in this text is this issue of how God has a way for us to pursue joy through our bodies and through even our, our sexuality and what God is most concerned about in giving us His law and His ways and His boundaries is not that we would just have mere exterior conformity, but that our hearts would be, would be bound to God and would pursue joy in every area of our lives, in particular how we live out our lives sexually. So let's read verses 27 to 30. I'll pray. And here's my plan. I want to make four brief observations, very quick. Somebody laughing at the word brief over there? (laughs) I saw that. I feel that. Um, We're going to make four brief observations about the text. And then we're going to look at just four strategies for fighting lust. And that's where I want to spend the most of our time. So let me read verse 27 through 30 of Matthew 5. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we, we come to this text uh, admittedly confessing that we are broken people in every facet of our being. Uh, we're broken emotionally, we're broken socially, uh, we're broken spiritually, we're broken sexually. And we need your help. For many in this room, you have taken our brokenness, you've forgiven it, you've given us a new heart so that we can follow you and resist sin, but you have left us here to still work out our salvation. And so we need help, we need encouragement, we need a a strange and beautiful and biblical mixture of conviction and encouragement. And then there are people in this room who are not trusting in you, certainly, with a, a group this size. I pray that by your kind and sovereign grace that you would open their eyes to the beauty and the joy and the the satisfying truth of who Christ is and what he has done, and that you would save people, that you'd give them a new heart, turn them from sin, and put their hope and trust in you, and I pray that you'd do all these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So, as we look at this text, let's just remember that Jesus is not nullifying the Old Testament. He's correcting the scribes' wrong interpretation of it. And let's remember, as we've been very careful to say throughout this whole study of the Sermon on the Mount, especially as we've got into this section where Jesus is quoting aspects of the Old Testament and, and helping to, uh, to correct their misunderstanding of it, is that the law, God's holiness code in the Old Testament was never meant to be a minimum standard that was to just merely dictate the actions that we do with our, with our hands. But the law, as we looked at again a few weeks ago, was meant to be a kind of tutor or an instructor that is to lead us to true joy by obeying God from the heart. So with that, just four brief... Observations uh, from this text. One is that God is most concerned with our hearts. I think that's just kind of clear, just, just jumps off the page. As Jesus has said here, he said that what's going on here is not a hand or a feet problem, it's not so much an action problem, but there's something deeper than just being able to check off a list of Ten Commandments saying, I didn't touch my neighbor's wife. Or commit some act with her or him or whatever, but it's a heart issue. And Jesus says that beyond just exterior action, there is the heart that God is after. If He has our hearts, God knows that our hands, our actions will follow. So God is most concerned with our hearts. Secondly, I think it's clear that our hearts are linked to our eyes. In fact, Jesus is is saying there clearly in verse 29, he says, if if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And we're going to talk about what he means by that in a a moment. So there's this this kind of connection. There's this direct link. The eyes, what we see, it's a portal to our heart. And the eyes often, because we're such visual people, and this is not just men, I think it's all humanity, the eye is linked to the heart. So it's going to have huge implications on how we fight for our heart. Our hearts are linked to our eyes. Third brief observation from this text is that Jesus demands drastic action in dealing with sin that originates in our heart. In fact, he he says that we should cut off our hand or pluck out our eye if it is causing us to sin. I don't think Jesus clearly... Christians throughout the history of the ages that have, have have thought about and wrestled with this text have have not understood this to mean that that Jesus is is advocating literal mutilation but that he is advocating spiritual mortification what does this word mortify mean it means that we are to kill we're to kill sin and so he's using this picture he's using this, this picture of of cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye to communicate to us how drastically serious we should take sin. Which then leads us to the fourth observation of this text before we get into strategies for fighting lust, is that the reason Jesus is, is, is commanding us, demanding us to be so drastic is because the consequences of giving over to sin are eternal. He says there that if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it away. Because, you know, your life won't be as optimal. No, that's not what he says. He says, pluck it out, cut it off, because it is better to go maim into the kingdom of God than to be separated from God for eternity. Now, isn't this interesting? Don't we tend to think of, um, you know, maybe a lot of us that grew up in the South, and I did. I actually grew up further south than y'all. I grew up in Southern California, and if you look at the map of, Cal- of the United States, I am actually further south than than you Southerners. Although, admittedly, it was a different kind of South. Right? <laughs> actually, it was more like Northern Mexico than Southern California. But um, uh, I love it. It's it's uh, we have accents different, but we have Southern accents. Um, Where was I going with that? Oh, the South. If you grew up in the South in the Bible Belt, maybe you have kind of grown up in this culture that sort of rails against sort of this hellfire and brimstone, sort of, ah, well, you know. But notice that Jesus here is using as... I mean, let's take this in. Jesus is using as a motivation the consequences of giving over habitually giving yourself over to sin. And he is saying as a warning that if you give yourself over to this over and over and over again, habitually, you give into this, that what awaits you is not a less than optimal life but eternal separation from God forever. A place that the Bible calls hell that Jesus says in other parts of the Gospels in Mark 9 is, is, is coming to my head right now where he says that it is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Younger Christians, don't roll your eyes At the threats of Scripture, they come from Jesus, God Himself, and they are intended to be a kind of warning for our soul, for our good. And Jesus is clearly saying that the consequence of giving over to this is eternal. So with those quick observations from this text, let's just look before we move into strategies for fighting sexual sin and lust, before we do that, we have to lay the groundwork for what God has done. What is this cosmic battle between God and sin that is happening in the life in the world now, that has happened in us, we have to understand. So in order to understand really the gospel, to understand even how we can fight this, we have to understand the good news of the gospel, and we have to understand sin and what God has done to rescue us from sin. So first, to understand sin, we have to realize that in the beginning, God created everything he created it very good, and in Genesis chapter 3, everything, I mean, it fell. And when our first parents, Adam and Eve rebelled. They became like the representatives of humanity. They became the dirty spigot through which all the water of everything that would flow out of them became polluted. And the Bible is very clear throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. It now says that humanity, every person, is not just neutralized or less than optimal, but we are by nature and by choice rebels. We are at enmity. In other words, we are at odds with God because of our sin nature because we've inherited it from our first parents Adam and Eve and because we by nature by choice are rebels and what has happened to us is that even though we are alive in a sense the consequences of our rebellion has brought spiritual death and so our hearts are dead and wicked and separated from God. Now that doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. There are wicked people out there that are more wicked than any of us were ever wicked, right? But it does mean that our hearts are, the Bible says it clearly in Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, we are dead in our sin and everything is distorted. Everything we touch is tainted and we need, our hearts are dead, we need most primarily not to be helped not to be encouraged not to have tips on how to live a better life but we need to be brought back to life we need to be resuscitated now I know those of you that have been around Crosspoint for a long time are saying oh well there Brad goes again every Sunday he does it he preaches the gospel that's right this is that moment that's right this is happening right now right and this is where you should be encouraged right and if it ever gets old to you that should be a sort of barometer that your heart is getting dusty and tired right If you're a Christian and the gospel of amazing grace ever becomes blasé to you, you need to shake the etch-a-sketch and get down to business with God and repent of your slumberness. I'm making up words now. Your slumberness, right? It's so important. I'm making stuff up and click into the beautiful... Message of the gospel, which you need to hear again and again. I've been a Christian, I think, since the spring of my senior year in high school of 1989 when I first heard the gospel. And just a moment ago, as we sang it, and as Reuben prayed it, and as Kwame came up and gave that beautiful spoken word, it was the gospel. And I was sitting down in that chair, 1989, 2015, do the math, 20 something years. And my heart was stirred and my eyes were gripped with tears at the gospel that I've known for decades. And so the gospel is, I haven't even said it yet, I'm just telling you it's important. The gospel is that our hearts are wicked and separated from God, but what God has done is he has taken our dead hearts and he has removed them. He's done heart surgery The message of the Bible, the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel is not, you know, you're not as good as you can be. Here are some tips and commandments and suggestions in the Bible that you should do to make yourself better, and if you'll do them, then God will be pleased with you. That's not the message of the gospel, although that is the message that many people preach, and it's wrong. The message of the gospel is that this is what has happened to your heart because you're a child of Adam and Eve, because all of us are separated from God by sin, by nature, and by choice. We are in a place of incapability. We can do nothing. And God, in His kind and sovereign and beautiful mercy, reaches down takes out our dead heart and gives us a new one so that we can behold and see and place our hope and our faith not in ourselves but in him and what he has done through his son Jesus so it's not just oh he gives me a new heart and everything's okay now now because we have a new heart we can behold the process what he has gone through to bring us to a place where we can be in right relationship so all humanity fell and humanity need to be judged And so God comes into humanity by taking on the likeness, Romans 8 says, of sinful flesh, but yet in a sinless, perfect way in the form of his son Jesus who comes and lives a perfect life where we have all rebelled, he completely and righteously obeyed. And then he lays down that perfect sacrifice of a perfect real human life, which isn't just a real human life. It's also the eternal Son of God, and He lays it down on the cross, God the Son, and on the cross, He bears all of the wrath and all of the punishment of God the Father. So get a picture of this. This isn't just like, you know, Sunday school coloring, book Jesus with blue eyes and you know Andy Gibb hair like a rocker from the 70s that just sort of loves you and wants to this is God the fierce majestic son laying down his life on the cross voluntarily and God the holy righteous father pouring out the judgment on the son that should have been ours and the son bearing the wrath of the father for us And because he's a perfect man, and because he's an eternally holy God, he is sufficient to bear the weight of all those that would ever turn and trust in him. And so on the cross, God the Son completely bears the wrath of God the Father and extinguishes it. And then he rises in victory over sin in the grave, and now because he is alive, he commands people, and this is how he brings them to life, he commands people to get up from their dead graves. And God the Son, who is now the victor, defeating death, sin, and all of its consequences, now dispatches God the Spirit to be the one that brings life as he determines to save a person through the eternal plan of the father and jesus has accomplished all that needs to be for that salvation then god the spirit the third person of the trinity comes down and takes our dead hearts and pumps life into it and gives us life so that we can behold what god the father has done through god the son so that we can now be made right with him thank you. That was a whole lot better than you clapped. But anyway, well, I realize you guys are just, you know, you're mostly middle-class white folks, and it's just, it's hard for you. It's hard for you. I get it. I get it. I get it. Keep working. Maybe in another decade or so of a church, we'll have it down better. And so that's the gospel so here's here's the thing is that I, to, I don't want to do it again because every time i do it you guys stop paying attention to what i say and you go you go you just go start thinking about mexican food you know my little thing about how there are only two types of mexican food right everything's a tortilla with either chicken or beef everything an enchilada a burrito a taco a flauta a tostada every, it's it's just a tortilla you got a choice it's a tortilla and it's either meat or chicken right? There's only two. Well, the same thing now. We've just divided all of humanity into only two groups. There are not white people and Mexican people and black people and Asian people. Those are just consequences of where our ancestors happened to migrate and the sun hit us differently and all that kind of stuff. Stop it with that categorization. There are only two types of people in this world. There are people that are still dead in their sins whose hearts are are against God, even if they don't realize it. They may be the most morally right people, They may, they may think, but they are not acknowledging the source of goodness, and thereby, because of that, they are not good moral people. They are treasonous idolaters. And so they are, they are either dead in their sins, or they are those that have been brought up from the grave and who are now alive and have a new heart. And if they have a new heart, now then, God has equipped them to have this heart that now will pursue him in ever oftentimes slow and tedious, small ways. But he leaves these new hearts, these people that he has brought back to life, he leaves them on earth to live out the implications of their salvation as a display and a witness of his surpassing worth so that through the process of them becoming stronger and stronger and stronger and more like Jesus, he will use their lives as a kind of aroma to other people that are still dead that he's drawing to life. Do you see that? And so with that then, what are the implications for people that have been given a new heart to be able to fight sexual sin and lust? So I have four thoughts here and then we'll be done and then we're going to come around the Lord's table, and we're going to receive communion together. And these are four strategies. Now, don't think of these as steps. There's much overlap here, and there's a whole bunch more that we can say. These are just things that I meditated on this week in the text and reading a whole bunch of stuff. There's four things that I want us to think about. This isn't a combination to unlock, right? This isn't oh, you kids, this isn't a cheat code for a video game, right? Like, oh, if I can just do these, ch 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 Bing, there it is, and then I can, you know, get to the next level. That's not the way the spiritual life works. I mean, come on. We are so efficient as Americans that it just jacks up our ability to just be, like, real and whole with God and just plod through the Christian life, right? Soapbox, done. All right, enough of that. So four strategies for fighting sexual sin and lust. One is that we we must identify it in our own hearts. Now I, I I bet I imagine that um, maybe some of you, when we kind of opened up the text, and you knew what the topic was going to be. Maybe one of the thoughts that went through your mind is, "Oh, not not me." Right? Thank you for laughing, brother, because that's what that th- that's what that deserves. It is it is really silly. Not me. Oh, I'm glad Brad's going to cover this now, because these young people need to hear this. <laughs> No, no, no! I, I think we need to realize that we, all of our hearts, are somehow tainted by this. Men and women, men and women, and we need to identify it. We need to see it in our hearts, and we need to call it what it is. Rosaria Butterfield is a uh, pastor's wife in North Carolina. You've heard me mention her name before. She, before she became a homeschooling Presbyterian pastor's wife in North Carolina, she was an ardent, antagonistic, lesbian English literature professor in Syracuse, New York. And through the witness of just a little church up in Syracuse, New York, and some correspondence that she had with this pastor and his family in uh, New York, she became a Christian. And has now become an incredible voice, uh, not just for helping the church think about how they should winsomely and with gospel-hearted compassion engage people that are in sexual brokenness, in particular homosexuality. But she has just become a wonderful voice for just how Christians should understand what God has done in rescuing them from all sin. And this is what she says in her uh, new book, Openness Unhindered. She says, I don't have it on the screen, but just listen to this. She's speaking about sin. And I want to apply it to our sin of lust in our hearts. She says, don't make a false peace with it. Don't make excuses. Don't get sentimental about it. Don't play the victim. I love this. If you bring the baby tiger into your house and name it Fluffy, don't be surprised if you wake up one day and Fluffy is eating you alive. That is how sin works. That's how lust works. And Fluffy knows his job. Sometimes sin lurks and festers for decades, deceiving the sinner that he really has it all under control until it unleashes itself on everything you've built, cherished, and loved. So let's not call our sin Fluffy. Men, let's not just say, oh, well, boys will be boys. No, it, it is at its core, it is rebellion against our creator God. It is taking our bodies, what God has created for his design and his glory, and it is rebellion against God. But let's not just call it what it is. Let's also realize how deep it is in our hearts. It's more than just mere physical desire, but it's rebellion against God. Essentially, when we are lusting after People in a sinful way, we are shaking our fist at God saying, I don't have what I want and I'm going to get it. Let me speak directly to men. Men, this goes far beyond uh, just maybe dabbling in pornography. I think we need to see that this is a lens through which men. Bro- in a broken way, look at women in general. It's a scratched lens. It's a foggy windshield. And it's more than just, it affects more than just our hearts. It is, listen to me, I've, I've thought a lot about this. It, it is the lust that, that exists in our hearts as men that then causes us at times to act out on that, whether it might be uh, you know, purchasing or viewing pornography or whatever, that is linked to a a sort of demonic web that fuels a worldwide industry of destruction and despair. The lust that causes a man to, he thinks, in an isolated way, just click on something or look in some way, that produces the demand that gives rise to the supply that would cause little girls to be sold into sex slavery. Now I'm not saying if you are I'm not trying to say that you're like involved in the sex trade if you've looked at pornography. I, I want you to see this tangled web of human sin. That there are wicked forces of hell out there that know how broken hearts are and what they want and it's all part of an ingredient of a big cauldron of sinful stew that produces forces wicked forces of hell that know no bounds that supply the broken lustful desires of a world of men who want what they want It's deep. And it's not just mere at boys being boys. It's a shaking fist against God saying, I want what I want, and I'll have it. Women, a word to you. It's not just a a man problem. And increasingly, I think 10 years ago when we started this church, and we talked about these a few times, I had a few... uh, gracious women come up to me and I think I in my naivete presented it as merely a maybe primarily a, a man issue and a few gracious women came up to me and they said Brad don't, don't talk like that because increasingly it, it's becoming I mean it's just across the genders and I think sometimes it's even harder for women because it's maybe more taboo for them to talk about it because they may come across as being some you know strange version of brokenness if they're giving themselves over to lust or whatever but it's a it's a woman problem as well. Another thing, women, I want you to, I want you to realize, and I want you to hear my heart on this, and I, um. I, I want I want you to um, receive this with some grace. I think I think that um, sisters in the Lord need to realize and be aware of the effect that what you wear can have on men. Now, I, I am not in any way blaming you for the brokenness of men. Without a doubt, men, it's, it's a, it's a, men, men feed it, right? But as sisters in Christ, I, I, want, I want to just just a, a pastoral word that I think all of us have grown up in a culture that is so broken and so carnal that even good-hearted, sweet Christian girls and women grow up in a world where it is just almost sort of subconscious that this is how you sort of dress and present yourself. And, and it just kind of, all that sort of feeds into this. And it just becomes kind of a cauldron of carnality, right? It's just a cauldron of carnality. And I see, I see, it, like it, I see it even like in social media. I see just young girls, even the way they pose to take pictures do you know what I'm talking about? The you gotta cant your body, kinda throw out your elbow. May God forbid that a teenage girl just kind of stand there, you know, like this, because we might realize that you're not as fit as the little girl next to you. And do you realize like what a broken cauldron of sinful mess that we are in? That little girls grow up in a culture where they know that men in the world are judging them by how they look in yoga pants. That's sick. It's diseased. It's broken. It's sad. It's it's heart-wrenching. And I'm just saying, sisters, just just not like don't give in to that cesspool of sin right like, like, I'm sorry, like I'm, like I'm sorry that you're growing up in a world where men are so jacked up, right? But it's been happening since Genesis 3. Men have been bumps on the log since Genesis 3. When, Adam was dece- when Eve was deceived, it's not like Adam was over in the corner of the garden tackling a buffalo, breaking its neck and saying, booyah! It says that right after she was tempted, she gave it to her husband who was sitting there picking his nose, being spiritually passive. And it's happening still. Men are not fighting for women. They're not fighting against this stuff. They're not coming. And it's just creating a culture where women are just growing up, young women are growing up in a culture where they subconsciously are just little sex objects. And it's sick. Women um, fight with everything within you to be measured by how good you look in the Instagram post. Just fight it. And I'm sorry that you're growing up in that world. I am. It's wicked. It is. So we need to identify it and realize how deep-seated it is in our hearts. Two, quickly, we need to starve it. I mean, it's just, all these things are interrelated. What we watch, what we expose ourselves to, it's so subtly pervasive in our culture. I mean, have you noticed how everybody in advertising and TV is just beautiful. And do you think that doesn't have an effect on us? When we binge on a Netflix series and spend four hours just watching a show where all the actors and actresses are just airbrushed beautiful, Do you not think that that will have an effect on your soul, young man? Do you not think that that will have an effect on your soul, young lady? When this broken Hollywood version of beauty becomes the unchallenged standard. And I think we need to identify it, we need to starve it, we need to watch what we watch. If you're a young man in this room and you don't have a filter or some sort of guard on your internet, if you're just giving yourself over, and we could talk ever, forever on this, but we, we need to start. What we feed grows. What we starve dies. And maybe there are just some things... And so this is what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about mutilation, but maybe you need to cut it out. Maybe you need to cancel Netflix. Maybe you need to get rid of that sinful prescription to some movie channel. Maybe you need to take your iPad and you need to go to the top of the Aflac building and you need to throw it because it would be more important for you to be without an iPad than to give yourself over to sin forever and be separated from God forever that's the tenacity that jesus is talking about it would be more important for you to go home after church rip the computer from its your wall and throw it out your window make sure nobody's standing outside your window so nobody gets hit in the head and then you got a lawsuit but throw it out your window it would be more important for you to be drastic like that than to just continue to seep along into slow destruction So right now, like right now, just some of you just need to tune out and you just need to tune in to what the Holy Spirit is saying. You need to starve. And you need to make that decision right now. And then thirdly, you need to fight it. Come on, we're so like, I think this is part of being Americans. We're so used to convenience and like, you know, I mean, we're so used to convenience. My family and I were watching a, football game yesterday which a lovely family in cross point invited us over to and they were fans of one team and we were fans of the other and it was cordial we're still christians we love each other i think they're still coming to this church we won they lost but anyway but they have a satellite like we have and it just made me think like there was a couple little things where like the, the satellite would skip you know for like half a second in the middle of a play and it made me think about just how impatient our hearts are, right? And just like, oh! We have no tenacity or condition for endurance in the fight, like, God forbid I have to stay on the line with somebody for 30 seconds from my help desk and the person has an Indian accent. And I can't understand them. Because we're used to getting everything we want. And then do you know How then that translates into our spiritual lives and how weak it makes us. And we don't fight, man, we don't fight. And how do you fight lust and sin? We fight it by repentance and confession and community. Confessing sin to one another shines light and sin cannot grow in the light. And if you're, listen to me, young man, because this was me 20-something years ago when I was a young lieutenant at Fort Benning. This was me. And by God's grace, he brought me out of this broken mindset. Know that repentance is a gift. Young man, do not get into a mode where you say, well, well you know, I'm going to kind of do my thing for a few years, and then I'll get straight with God. Then I'll get serious about God. Then I'll really deal with this sin. Listen, young man, repentance is a gift. Romans 2 says that it is the gift of God that leads you to Repentance. Don't count on that gift always being there. That's part of the message of the book of Hebrews. He says, if you hear God's voice, as God's people did in the desert, do not harden your hearts. Don't bank on the fact that you're still gonna be tuned into God's voice two years from now while you dabble in your stuff. Repentance is a gift. Today, if you hear God's voice, heed his voice, take heed and take action and repent and confess and bring brothers into your life that you can confess to." Secondly, another way that we fight is we fight by the gospel, by knowing and applying it, by thinking about the truths that we just dwelled on and reveled in and clapped at and said amen to. We need to hear that again and again as a Christian because it is not just the gospel that saves us, it's the gospel that strengthens us for the Christian life. And so in that moment of temptation, I want to remember what God the Father has done through God the Son on the cross to take away my sin. And then listen to this. Here's this beautiful truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says that he has not only taken away my sin for our sake, meaning those his people, He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, to bear the punishment, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus takes away our sin, and he gives us his righteousness by his Holy Spirit. So in that moment of temptation, when my heart is weak, I know that Jesus, as Will read for us this morning from Romans 8, is there for me, praying for me, saying that nothing shall come against God's people. In that moment, I need to know the gospel and rehearse it. And in all of that, I need to take confidence in the fact that God is working through His Spirit in me. Listen to Romans 8, verses 12 through 13. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, and not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. This is the consequence of what it means to have a new heart. For if you live according to the flesh, that old way, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Every Christian just needs to know that phrase. If by the Spirit, so it's the Holy Spirit, God the Father, has poured out His wrath on God the Son, who satisfied it, removed it, rose again, the Spirit gives us a new heart, dwells in us, and now the Spirit is there in our hearts enabling us, not doing it for us, but enabling us to put to death the deeds of the body. If you do that, you will live. And the Holy, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We fight sin by God's presence in us, by his word, by community, by repentance, by confession, by living the Christian life, the implications of the gospel, we can fight. Let this, let this quote from John Owen, a Puritan from the 1600s, encourage you. Those old cats had some wonderful things to say. Listen to John Owen. He says, This whole work, meaning fighting sin, which I have described as our duty, is effected, carried on, and accomplished by the power of the Spirit in all the parts and degrees of it as he alone clearly and fully convinces the heart of the evil and guilt and danger of corruption, lust, or sin to be mortified. In other words, there's something stronger going on in you than your own ability to fight sin, and it is the triune God who in that moment, weak sinner, in that moment, weak Christian, is for you, not against you. And you got to see that, know that, embrace that. And then finally, we end on this before we take the Lord's Supper together. Pursue joy. I think this is so important. The call of the heart, the call of the gospel is not stop doing that, bad little boy and girl. Tuck in your shirt, comb your hair, and do better, and clench your teeth until you get to heaven. That's not the call of the gospel. The call of the Christ life is to pursue true joy. And when God makes our hearts alive, he gives us eyes to see so that we can begin to see that, no, all these things that are counterfeit, that seem so pleasurable when my heart was dead, I now begin to see with increasing clarity that they are actually counterfeit false joys. And God is not calling me to say yes to something that I really want to do and it's gonna be awesome, but I gotta be a Christian, tuck in my shirt and hold on to heaven. No, He's he's calling us to say no to things that that seem like a shiny apple on the outside, but the moment I take a bite of it, it's just full of worms. And then he bids us to true joy, like really living for keeping ourselves holy and righteous and pursuing Christ is actually, you've got to reconcile this in your hearts. You've got to lay a hold of this young man. giving yourself to the pursuit of righteousness is actually more pleasurable than giving in to sin. God is for your joy, for your maximum pleasure, not against it. And the moment that we see that, our hearts are freed because we were wired for pleasure, we were wired for joy. The battle is is that we were wired for a superior joy, which is obedience to God. I've read it before, Thomas Chalmers, 1600s, Scottish pastor, another one of those dead cats that has a lot to say to us today. He preached a sermon called the expulsive, and I'm going to end with this, the expulsive power of a new affection. I love this quote. You know, when I die someday, hopefully when I'm in my mid-80s, actually we got a few 80-something year olds, and when I'm in my mid-90s, I don't want to make you think that I think you're on death's door or anything like that, mid-90s, when I give up the ghost and whoever the young bucks are that are here at the time drag me off and somebody picks up mid-sermon and I'm in heaven. You know my first fist bump is going to be Charles Spurgeon. You know that, right? All right. Number two on that list is going to be Tommy C. Thomas Chalmers. Because this quote has I think it has, helped me, it has helped me so much. Listen to what Thomas Chalmers said when he talks about the expulsive. Now, you got to know this word, expulsive. Those of you that, you know, (laughs) grew up in California like me, where, you know, school was sort of not the greatest. It's not explosive. Expulsive, it expels. He says this, the only way to dispossess an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In the gospel, do we so behold God as that we may love God? It is there and there only where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to sinners. The spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection, and that is obedience, living for Jesus, Jesus himself. The one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires, and it's the only way that deliverance is possible. The only way, young man, to fight and live for Jesus in this cesspool of carnality that we live in in America today is not to say no to things that we really want to do so we can grit our teeth and hold on for heaven. But it is to be, it is to be enthralled with the beauty of the affection of what it means to enjoy God forever and that's where all you Presbyterians clap because it's the first answer to the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To know God and enjoy Him forever. Oh God let's, let's seize a hold of this. God grip my heart and we need, to, we need to carry it out with these types of rationales grip my heart that to never give in to my desires and give myself to God is more joyful and pleasurable than anything this broken world has to offer. Lord, settle that in my heart. Settle that in the hearts of these people in this room. Fathers, we come now to receive communion, to, to take this bread and this juice. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would see how beautiful and how satisfying Obeying the king is, God, wipe the mud off of the windshield of our hearts so that we can see it afresh. And let that new and grand and glorious affection expel former desires. God, do it I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. Those that are battling, that are gripped, that are gripped by lust, that are gripped in sin, Lord, do it, I pray. And God, for my, my friend that is in this room who's not yet trusting in Christ and they came in and their hearts were dead and maybe they didn't realize it, but now they do. And by your Holy Spirit, you're, you're even pulling back the shade. You're, you're, you're drawing the curtain so that they can see that they're, they're, they're dead. They, they aren't truly trusting in you. God, that, that is your first kindness to them. And if that's you, friend, that's God saying stop trusting in yourself For the first time, put your hope in what He has done through His Son on the cross and in nothing else. And God, would you do that for dead hearts that walked into this room with their hearts dull and their eyes blind? Would you wake them up and give them a new heart so that they can behold the beauty and joy of Jesus and set their heart on that one great affection? And as we come around your table, Lord, would you recalibrate our hearts? Would you, would you recalibrate us so that we can pursue joy and put all our hope in what you've done through your son on the cross to rescue us, to redeem us, to capture our hearts for joy. And Lord, I pray that you do this for your glory are good. In Jesus' name. Amen.